last week, just talking about joy from the book of Philippians. And we're talking about joy squared, right? How to live a life with increasing joy, with joy that increases as we go through life, doesn't decrease. And we looked at pictures of babies, right, and how joyful they seem, and they, they can't really express it or say it to us, but you see this joy on a baby's face like on no one else's face, right? But as we go through life, a lot of times our facial expressions harden, and they begin to change as we go through life experiences. But God wants us to have joy throughout our whole Life. And so we looked at the story of Paul and how Paul, uh, circumstantially throughout his life, he had ups and downs, right? Hey, I was reading this passage this morning about uh, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me just read a portion of it to you. And I'm going to begin in verse 3. And it's not on the screen, so just, just listen. Uh, it says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, in understanding, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit. And he goes on a little bit further down. Um, uh, in verse 9, he says, Known and yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Right? And so he expresses these hardships that he's been in his life. And I was just reading that. And I, you know, you can't really tell tone from a letter, like something that someone's written. You, you Actually, tone is normally conveyed by our voice inflection. But it seemed to me, at least, as I was reading that, that to the best of his ability, he created this tone of joy, of peace, of contentment in God, even in the midst of being beaten and being poor and not having much and being in sorrow and being in trouble and being in the midst of riots, right? And so circumstantially, Paul's life was up and down. He went through some good times and he went through some troubling times. But emotionally, as we look over his life, at least as he writes about it in the scriptures, he seems to be up. He seems to have this positive attitude about what's happening in the world and what God will use him for. And last week we talked about stinking thinking, right? That a lot of times that there's that negative tendency when something bad happens, when if as Paul, when you're being beaten, right? When you find yourself in the midst of a riot, right? When money runs out, that, that we, we often kind of trail off into the stinking thinking, right? We begin thinking negative and the things of this world and of this life seem much larger than they actually are when we do that. And so we have to keep ourselves positive. And we saw that Paul did that by thinking first and foremost about the fact that he, his everyday life, everything that he did was a part of God's mission, right? That God was on a mission, that God was doing things in this world. And he said, hey, my life is a part of that. Every moment of every day, whether I'm making a tent or whether I'm preaching to thousands, right? That every moment of every day, what I'm doing is contributing to God's mission. And so my attitude must be positive so that my hand can be at work and what God has called me to do, but not just that, so that my eyes can be open to opportunities to serve God that exist all around me. And so we see that in Paul's life, especially in Philippians uh, chapter one last week. Now this week, we're going to move on into Philippians chapter two, but let's pray before we, we continue in the message. God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks that um, we get to sing songs of praise, songs of joy, songs about what you've done. That we get to read your scriptures, and in there we hear about your plan for our lives. We hear about what you've done through people in times past. And our imagination is broken open 
about what you want to do in our time. God, I pray that you'll help us to live lives of more joy. And that as we read these scriptures, that we will get to a clearer understanding of the joy that you have for us. And we'll get a clearer understanding of that saying, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The thing about joy is this, right? Um, a lot of times joy and happiness are confused, right? A lot of times we, we confuse joy and happiness. And we talked a little bit about this last week. But we'll talk a little bit about it this week as well. And we'll probably talk about it for the next two weeks as we go throughout this series. Because uh, we're, we're in this four-week series on joy, and this is just week two. And so the thing about happiness that we said last week is that happiness comes from external things, right? It's things that we can either attain or a situation that we can create for ourselves or an environment that we can uh, find ourselves in, place ourselves in, an environment that we can create that brings us uh, happiness. But this happiness is temporary, right? Because these things that we attain, these environments that we're in are often subject to change, right? They can change almost uh, sometimes at the drop of a hat, right? Just in a moment's notice, without notice, some Sometimes our situation, our circumstance, our environment can change. And so happiness is rooted in that. But what we see about joy is that joy is never the result of our achievements or human advancement. Right? It's never saying, I worked my, as hard as I could and I was able to achieve this position. Or I worked as hard as I could and I was able to make this much money. Or I worked as hard as I could and I was able to buy this house. Right? Yesterday we went to a wedding that was out in Avondale Estates, and while we were out there, right across from, from this, on this lake, and so there's a lake house out there, if anybody's familiar with it. There's a lake house that sits right there, and there's houses around the lake, and it's just the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. But there was, there was this house, and there was a, a, a house, and then there was this house that had just totally burned to the ground, right? It was totally destroyed by fire, right? And it was a reminder to me that, yeah, that was a beautiful house, I'm sure, like the house on its left and its right. And when the person purchased that house and moved their stuff in, I'm sure they were as happy as could be, right? But that's not joy because joy, happiness can change at a moment's notice, Right? This, this, in our society, our society is built around this idea. Well, there's three unalienable rights. Right? Life, liberty, and... All right, yeah, the pursuit of happiness. And our government is set up in a way to protect that idea that we can pursue happiness, right? You can get a job. You can make money. You can buy a house. You can buy new shoes. You can buy food, right? And in our society, we have access to these things that make our lives better, right? They help us improve our quality of life, and they ultimately are intended to create happy people, Right. And so there's opportunity. And as long as we're willing to pursue those opportunities, we can create environments where we are happy. Our government set up to try to protect that. Right. But our government does nothing about your joy. Right. There's nothing in our in our government, in our society that's set up to protect your joy. Because the reality is, circumstantially, your life is going to be up and down, just like Paul's. You're going to have hard times and you're going to have good times. You're going to have times of ease, and you're going to have times where you just feel like giving up. And somewhere we have to find this joy that Paul writes about, because it's that joy that energizes our life. It's that joy that gives us strength. It's that joy that helps us to continue on when we're in the midst of hard times. Now, the big idea that I want you to see this morning is that the church must 
pursue its own joy. The church must pursue its own joy. Now, I hope when I say that, the light bulb goes off in your head. Because I'm a big guy that talks about mission, right? God's mission. That God is on a mission in this world. That God is doing things in this world. Sometimes we don't see them. Sometimes we only recognize them in retrospect, right? We look back and we say, God was there. He was working in my life. And he did this, right? He worked this situation out, right? For me, for my good. But there's times when we can live with eyes wide open and our imagination broken open and we can see what God is doing in our current environment and we can join hands with God and work with God in what he's doing in our world. And the scriptures do teach from beginning to end that God is on a mission and that the church is a church that's sent out into this world for God's mission. That's clear in the Bible from beginning to end, right? God is calling these people and ultimately he's calling them to what he is doing in the world. And we see this particularly in the New Testament. Now, if you've been a part of the church uh, for, for a while um, or been a part of, of church maybe growing up, you might have experienced this, right? There, there's, there's different folk, different churches have different areas of focus, right? Some churches are become turned in on themselves, right? And all they do is events that, that, um, that, that benefit themselves, that they, they have ice cream socials and all kinds of social events and big breakfasts and they eat. <laughs> and there's not much focus on mission that's happening outside the doors of the church, right? And then there's other churches that are so focused on mission that rarely nothing's happening in the church, right? They're out feeding the hungry and clothing the homeless and they're serving people. They're all about God's mission in the world, right? And so churches kind of trend in, in two different ways. And it's true. In the scriptures, God is focused on mission. God is about his mission and sending people out into the world. The church is a community that's gathered and it is sent. The church is a community that's gathered and it's sent on God's mission. And so we never want to forget what's happening outside of our doors because that happens quickly and often without us even realizing, um, realizing that it is. But the church is ultimately a community first that pursues its own joy. You see, this is what creates a distinct community in the midst of our world. The church is a community that was created to be distinct. Look with me in Philippians, and we'll talk more about this church being Created to pursue its own joy. In Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin right there in verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. You hear what the scripture is calling the church to be is calling the church to be a community that's looking after one another, a distinct community that is deeply concerned, that is seriously concerned with the well-being and ultimately the joy of one another. That it's concerned with this, each other having a ability to be connected with Christ and ultimately being connected with the joy that is experienced there. It was a community that is so deeply concerned with each other that it's trying to protect one another before it's trying to protect itself. It's deeply concerned with people having access not just to the church, not just to 
the ability to come together and sing songs and read scripture together, but having access to Christ through the church. The church was set up in such a way that when people come in, when people become a part of it, right, that we're looking out for the needs of one another and that through doing that, we come to know Christ better by the way the church relates to itself. You see, the church was called to be a distinct community, a community that did life differently from the society around it, a community that had a different set of pursuits, a different set of values, a different ethic from the community around it. There's these scriptures. There's one that says you're called to be a peculiar people, right? There's another that says you're, you're intended to shine like stars in the sky, right? The church was supposed to be a different community that stood out from the world around it. We see this even in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, if you have your Bible, you could turn there. In Acts chapter two, verse, uh, verse 42, I mean, Read what that says. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by all the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to see the first thing that they did, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves first to God. They put God first. The second thing, though, they did is they began meeting the needs of one another. They began looking out for the needs of one another. They became this community that contributed deeply to the joy of each other, right? They were serious about being this distinct community. In fact, when the church first started in the first century, when the church first started, there wasn't a, a clear distinction between Christians and, and Jews, right? Nobody would set out and say, we're, we're starting a new religion and we're going to call it Christianity, Right? But rather, it was almost like a sect or a denomination of Judaism of people that had come to believe that Jesus was God's chosen, right? That Jesus was the one and they believed in what they saw. They believed in what he did. They believed that he had risen from the Christ, from, from the, from the tomb, that Christ had risen from the tomb. They believed these things and they believed uh, uh, differently from the rest of the Jews about Jesus. But a lot of the things they believed were in line with the rest of the Jews, right? In fact, if you would have asked them if they were a Christian, they probably would have said, no, They would have said, no, I'm a Jew, right? But I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ. But as this community began to form and as it began to shape, it became clear that those who followed Christ were beginning to form a distinct community, right? This community that had a different sense of ethic, right? This community that had this radical grace, right? That had this unimaginable compassion, that had this diversity like nowhere seen in the world that was so divided. And this different kind of community began to spring up. And in fact, in Acts chapter 13, it's the first time that the church, the, the followers of Christ are called Christians because it became so clear that this was a distinct community, a community that contributed to one another's joy, a community that looked after each other in a different kind of way, a community that welcomed people that were not like them in a different kind of way, a community that was, was, was looking after, that was pursuing after the joy of the world. You see, the church is called to be distinct. It's supposed to be a community that looks after its own joy first, 
and this distinction, this ability to look after the joy and meet the needs of one another is one of the things that makes us different. And in fact, it's a major part of our witness. So the church often gets wrapped up in this ideal of God's mission. And we focus so heavily on that that we're pursuing numbers, right? And I've, I've seen this happen, right? We're, we're counting how many people are getting saved, how many people are baptized, how many people can we bring in the doors of the church. And we focus so heavily on numbers, but we forget that what God is looking at first, not that God's not concerned about numbers. There's a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. So we know God is concerned about numbers, but God is primarily concerned with the nature of the church first because that's our biggest witness and in acts chapter 2 we see that they began having everything in common they devoted themselves to god they committed themselves to one another and what does it say the last thing it says in that chapter and the lord added to their numbers daily right so we as a church don't want to get so focused on these numbers and how many are doing this and how many are doing that we want to be focused on one another's joy on being a church that pursues each other's joy that pursues a godly nature and we trust god to add to our numbers daily we trust god to do that because in the scriptures we see time and time again that god does that you see, a church as a distinct community, our distinction is our greatest witness. In fact, people come to know Jesus when they come to know the church. The church points people to Jesus. In fact, we are the earthly representation of Jesus Christ on the earth. And so when people come in contact with the church, all of us, not just the ones that stand here on the stage, right? Not just the ones that have some title or position. All of us are responsible for pointing people to Jesus, not just in word by what we say, but by the way we live our lives, by the way we look after the needs and the joy of one another, the way that we protect one another, the way we do in Philippians, what it says, consider other people's interests beyond or before your own. When we do that, people come, they come to know Jesus. And that's, that's our witness. That's our witness. And we must take that seriously. There's this quote by Stanley Hauerwas. And I love Stanley Hauerwas. And I couldn't really find exactly what I was looking for. Um, because, he's, because he's written so much. I have this book by him. It's a, a reader by him. Um, well, it's at home now. But it's, it's, it's you know, probably six or 700 pages, right? Uh, and so I haven't read everything. And I was waiting, waiting through that, trying to figure out, uh, find what I was looking for this week. And I wasn't able to find it. And I told Jamie, I think this slide's on the, uh, on the slide. Um, because I told him, I said, go ahead and put this, this quote on the slide. But if I find the one that I'm looking for, I'll send it to you. But listen to the, what he says. He says, the purpose of the church is not to prove that Christianity is true, but to demonstrate what the world is like if it is true. Listen to that. The purpose of the church is not to prove that Christianity is true. In other words, we're not out there trying to convince people, hey, this is true, hey, this is true, hey, this is true. What's more important is that we demonstrate to them that we live like it is true and they come to know that it's true by our lives. And so often the church gets so wrapped up and we get so wrapped up in how can I convince so-and-so or how can I convince my friend, my coworker, my neighbor that Jesus Christ is the real deal and that they should believe as I already believe. We go so convinced and uh, wrapped up in the words that I have to use to do that. 
When Jesus is saying it's your witness, it's your life, it's the way that you're living, it's the way you look after the needs of one another, it's the things you do on a daily basis, it's the way you're a church that pursues one another's joy, that pursues one another's interest. It's the kind of church that you become. I found this quote this week by Pope Francis. Listen to what he says. He says, the Christian message is called the gospel. That is the good news, an announcement of joy for all people. The church is not a refuge for sad people. The church is a house of joy, right? The church is a house of joy. This is a place that we should come and experience the joy of one another and not just experience that joy because we're coming to know Jesus, but we're experiencing that joy because we're contributing to the joy of each other. We're considering the needs of others above our own, and we're serious about pursuing one another's joy. Now, the church has been this community that's taken care of people for a long time. And this week, I became convicted that it's time for the church to have a better way of taking care of people's needs than just by starting a benevolence fund, by just having money set aside that we can hand to people. It's time for the church to begin thinking about real and creative ways that we can take care of the needs of one another, how we can help each other. Because the reality is, at some point in life, we all find ourselves with a need that we cannot meet. At some point in life, we're going to need someone else to reach over to us and help us walk this journey. At some point in life, we're going to be able to say, or we're going to be forced to say that I can't do this alone. And the church has to find real and creative ways to walk with one another through the challenges that we have in life. A church that contributes to one another joy. So I want to challenge you to do this, right? To begin thinking. To begin thinking, how could we be a church that does this? How can we be a church? What creative things that we can do can we do in this world, in our community, that are going to help us as a church meet the needs of others? What creative things can we do beyond having a benevolence fund, money set aside that we can say, hey, you need money, here you go. What creative ways can the church help people? How can the church contribute to one another's joy? Because that's what God has called us to do. And it's in doing that 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 becomes our witness. There's this passage, and it's one of my favorite passages in Titus chapter 2. And I want you to hear this, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. In Titus chapter 2, listen to what it says. He talks about every kind of uh, area of society. He says, you, however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. He's talking to Titus. Titus was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. He, um, he, he was a minister. He says, you, however, you must uh, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the ways they live, not to slander, to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, or their yeah, husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned 
so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they had nothing to say, bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they can make the teachings about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, that whole passage is given to the church living its life in such a way that it makes the teachings about God attractive. Now, the thing that the church has gotten confused historically in times past is that it said that this scripture, because it said this is what you ought to do, that God was saying this is where it's saying uh, know your role and stay in it. Right. Uh, Slaves, know your role and say it, stay in slavery. And and that is approved by God. Slavery Uh, women uh, know your role in the home and stay in it. Right. And and that's approved by God. That's where the church went wrong in times past. But what what this scripture is saying, whatever place you find yourself in in society, what you ought to be doing is finding how I can best honor God there first because that's my greatest witness and it'll make the teachings of Christ attractive. And so wherever I am in society, wherever I find myself working, whether I'm working in my home or whether I'm working out in a job somewhere, whether I'm still looking for work, wherever I am, I'm living my life in a way that I make the teachings of Christ attractive. You see, what God is first and foremost concerned about is that the church be this distinct community and that when people see us, they see something different. And they're not just drawn to the church, but they're drawn to Jesus Christ because the life we live points to him. And that's what the gospel is first and foremost about. And the church is a community that's after its own joy. Now, what this means is that we must be a community that deeply loves one another. That we must be a community that deeply loves one another. John Piper said this. He says, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard. Your risk will be high. Your joy will be full. If you live to make others glad in God, yeah, there's going to be some hardships you're going to go through. It's not going to be all easy, right? There's going to be some risk that you'll endure, but your joy is going to be full. You see, God has called us to love, and love calls us to actions that are otherwise unwise, right? It calls us to actions that otherwise it wouldn't seem reasonable for us to do. In any other circumstance, it would not have made sense for Jesus to go to the cross. In any other circumstance, it would not make sense for us to go out of our way to love people in radical ways. But the scriptures are calling us to do that because in doing that, we bear witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, So I love you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. You are my friends if you do what I command it. I no longer call you servants but, um, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends 
For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, uh, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Right? And this is part of what Jesus' last message to his disciples when he sat down with them was, was this love each other and then your joy will be complete. It doesn't make sense, right? Because everything in our society is telling us to go pursue, go achieve, go accomplish, go get for yourself. But what Jesus is saying is go give, go pour yourself out, go live sacrificially, go be a servant, go love people, and your joy will be complete. When I read this picture, this passage, it's almost like Jesus is daring us to do that. Like he's daring us to try him and see for ourselves. You see, the reality is God created us to live a life with increasing joy. But we must first trust him, step out on faith, and love when it's not easy. Love when it's difficult. Love when it's challenging. Love the unlovable. Love those who mistreat us. Love when it costs us deeply. And then as we do that, we begin to learn that, yeah, Jesus was right. My joy is being completed as I serve him, as I live for him every day. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks this morning for these scriptures that teach us the way that you created us to live. And God, I I admit that there were times in preparing this message that I had a hard time with some of the things that I felt that I needed to say. And I was wrestling with this idea of the church being a community that pursues its own joy. Because it seems to me that in this world that joy comes from the things we have. But I've become convinced that that's a lie that our society tells and will continue to tell. And so, God, please help us to be even more convinced as we live this life that our joy is not found in things, but that our joy is found in the creator of everything. God, we thank you for being the source of our joy, the one who helps us and walks with us in this life, that we might serve you more fully. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we do each Sunday,